Hello, I'm Kathy Chapesky, and this is the Opiongo Line, a podcast dedicated to the unique heritage and vibrant culture of the Upper Madawaska Valley. Today, we have a special edition of our show in celebration of an annual cultural festival that we usually celebrate, that is, when we're not under a lockdown from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's called Kashub Day, celebrated every May 3rd in Wilno, Canada's first Polish Kashub settlement. And so, our show today, and it's about all things Kashubian. We're joined by Josh Blank, Peter Glovczewski, Angela Lerbetsky, Shirley Mass Conley, and Teresa Prince, all local Polish Kashub historians who have published informative and entertaining articles or books about the subject of our show today, Kashubs of the West. No, we're not talking about some 19th century gunslingers you never heard of, or some obscure Hollywood Western you missed involving Tombstone, Deadwood, or a shootout at the OK Corral. Rather, these five writers are here to tell us about something far more important. Nothing against our American cousins and their ability to tell tall tales of their Wild West, but we think the true history of our Kashubs, who left Northern Europe in the second half of the 19th century and struck out for our kinder, gentler western frontier of Renfrew County, is a far better story, and with a lot less gunfire. For it was their luck of the draw and our good fortune that those Kashubs never made it to Tombstone or the O.K. Corral. Rather, they stopped here along the rugged frontier of eastern Ontario, and what a difference they have made to our area's unique local heritage and distinctive cultural identity. Understandably, the story of the Kashubs of the West is not that well known, given, I suppose, that it's never been made into a spaghetti western starring Clint Eastwood. Nor, if the truth must be known, and it must, has our local Kashub story been fully written yet. Indeed, that is why we have gathered these five important local historians together today, to let you hear about the intriguing new twists and turns, if not recent discoveries, that have reframed much of what we thought we knew about our local Kashubs. Putting it mildly, by the end of the 20th century, our understanding had gotten, well, as they say in Kashubian, takitak. So no, you're not going to hear about Wyatt Earp, Calamity Jane, or Billy the Kid. What you will hear about is essential grit, unshakable faith, and the dogged pursuit of liberty, if not a better life. You'll also hear about a championship baseball team led by a local cashew pitcher-turned-priest who wiped the floor of the entire Ottawa Valley in 1910. To say little of some remarkable works of human kindness that reverberate to this day as far away as South America. Let's start at the beginning, however, by imagining something quite simple and pleasant. Imagine, if you will, walking along any old dirt road near Barry's Bay, Pog Lake, Siberia, Wilno, Round Lake, or just about anywhere along the western frontier of Renfrew County. Pretend it's a warm summer evening in 1958, exactly 100 years after the first Kashubian immigrants arrived in the Upper Ottawa Valley. Imagine, if you will, that on that warm summer evening, you are walking past an old farmhouse, its timbered walls of weathered logs almost black 
and suddenly you hear a sweet voice, a grandmother putting her grandchildren to bed, singing them an old Kashubian lullaby. Spiel I let komoya mawa chasna chebye yush ya she benje kawe shawa ati otskis mrush lulai lulai moya mawa swan kozash woyush Ati Sleep, my little baby. The time has come for you now. I will rock you, and you will close your eyes. Lullaby, lullaby, my little one. The sun has already set, and you... We'll be sleeping soon until morning comes. Now imagine, years later, a fellow by the name of Peter Glofcheski, born in the 1950s and who once listened to that lullaby and who grew up with an insatiable curiosity. For decades, he researched his own ancestral roots, first planted near what he had always believed was Canada's oldest Polish settlement, a place called Wilno. So let's join Peter now as he reads aloud an article he wrote some years ago. It tells of how his understanding of what it meant to be a Polish-Canadian was utterly changed one day through a single book that he had only heard about. So today, he's not only president of the Wilno Heritage Society, but he's one of those Kashubs of the West you're here to meet. Good afternoon, listeners. My narrative today concerns the importance of a book titled Szemia Gromadzi Prohe in Polish, or The Land Gathers Dust in English. Joseph Kishelewski, a Polish writer, was born in Austrian-occupied Galicia, Poland in 1905. He studied the Polish language at the Adam Mickiewicz University in Poznan. After graduating, he worked as a journalist and editor in Poland, a country which after World War I had reappeared on the map of Europe for the first time in over 120 years. For two years, 1937 and 1938, Joseph Kishelewski traveled across the northern parts of Germany and Poland, critically analyzing everyday life among the people there, including the issues that concerned the many Slavs of the region. One group of Slavs he studied at length were the Kashubs. In the summer of 1939, his findings and observations were published in The Land Gathers Dust, a book which recognized the growing power of the Nazi military machine and predicted that war would start soon. Within weeks, Germany had invaded Poland and World War II began. This book, The Land Gathers Dust, was among hundreds of others which quickly banned by the Nazis and anyone who had it was subject to arrest and even execution. Kisilewski escaped to Romania, then to France and Great Britain. He continued to write and publish, but never returned to Poland. He died in Ireland in 1966. In the Wilno Heritage Society's spring-summer 2013 newsletter, I wrote about how a local young man, Aloysius Rakuski, studied at a Roman Catholic seminary in Woodstock, Ontario, in the 1940s. While there, Father Brunin Svitalski introduced Aloysius to the writings of many Polish authors, like Joseph Kishlewski, 
Father Svitalsky had escaped the Nazis as they invaded Poland and would bring with him to Canada a small library of Polish literature. In that library was a Polish copy of The Land Gathers Dust. As seminarian Rakowski read this book, he came to the chapters dedicated to the Kashubs of northern Poland. It was at this moment that he realized that our ancestors here in the upper Madawaska Valley were Kashubs. Our forefathers, with a language related to, but different from Polish, had always considered themselves Poles, but somehow felt in some way distinct. Seminarian Rakowski now knew why. Before returning the book, as he would later say, Seminary Rakowski made sure to type out the most significant and exciting sections, and so preserved them for myself, more than 30 single-spaced pages. I dubbed my precious document excerpts from Jemia Gromadji Prahe. He would then store these precious pages at his mother's home in Barry's Bay. After ordination, Father Al spent the next couple of decades working and traveling as a redemptorist priest. In his busy life, those pages were forgotten until, in the mid-1960s, he rediscovered them among his mother's papers. He read again the work he had saved. His passion for Canadian Kashub history erupted. Father Al would spend the rest of his life reading, writing, and traveling to collect and preserve our heritage. All of his labor is available to you in his own book, The Saga of the Kashub People. It is Father Rakowski's published personal study of the Kashubs of Poland, Canada, and the United States, and is sold in the Wilner Heritage Society bookstore or online through www.wilno.org. If you were to open Father Al's saga, you would find that Joseph Kishelewski is the very first person acknowledged as a contributing source. Father Al refers to Kishelewski's book as a classic work which includes an outline of Kashub history in Europe from the 13th century until just before the outbreak of World War II. From page 345 to about page 480, and almost to the end of the book, Kishelevsky writes about the Kashubs as those who had not emigrated, but stayed behind and lived in northwestern Poland. Father Al's stimulus was the land gathers dust. His legacy is every word that we now read, write, and live, our Kashub history. So where would we, the descendants of Kashub Canadian immigrants be without Father Al Rakowski and his chance encounter with the land gathers dust. Would we ever have discovered our Polish Kashub past? Maybe, but to what extent? Would Shirley Mass Connolly and others have been so inspired to uncover and write our family histories? Would so many of us have journeyed to Kashubi in Northern Europe to touch our roots and connect with living relatives? Would the Wilno Heritage Society with its inspiring Canada's Polish Kashub Museum and Park, exists. Would we celebrate Kashub Day? What do you think? Henrik Bartul is a historian, writer, and filmmaker. He produced an excellent documentary entitled Canadian Kashubi, Canada's First Polish Settlers. He was born in Gdynia, a city that rests on the edge of the Baltic coast. He now resides in Barry's Bay with his wife Ivana and their three sons. Henrik is also president of the Polish Heritage Institute Kashubi. In one of my many interesting conversations I've had with him, the subject of The Land Gathers Dust came up. It is a rare book, published only in Polish, and we, the Wilno Heritage Society, have never come across a copy. Henrik smiled and said, I have it. Not only does Henrik have it, he has a genuine 1939 
hardcover first edition. Henrik has read much of the book and is impressed by Kishilevsky's depth of research and grasp of the Kashyyyk spirit. Henrik's copy of the book has its own story. In 1939, as Hitler's Nazis occupied Poland, his copy was safely tucked away in the city of Vilnius and belonged to Henrik's godmother. A few years ago, aware of her godson's passion for Polish books and history, she gave it to him as a gift. Through the kindness of Henrik, this copy of The Land Gathers Dust was on display at our Wilno Heritage Museum on Kashub Day 2014 and throughout that summer. When I first opened Henrik's copy, I was in his living room here in Barry's Bay. I felt some of the same awe that Father Okuski must have felt more than 70 years ago. It is a beautifully bound book with an impressive cover. The study of the Kashu people is well illustrated and includes pictures of ancestral embroidery and furniture. Unlike Father Al, I was unable to read much of the Polish text, but Henrik impressively translated a few meaningful passages for me. It is, without a doubt, a very important piece of Kashub history. It must be translated and shared with us, the Kashubs of Canada. Joseph Kishilevsky is emphatic in his praise of the Kashub people, their resistance to Prussian indoctrination, and their dream to be part of a free Poland. Or, as he wrote, I, Joseph Kishilevsky, by the will of God and the Polish nation, solemnly announce that the name Kashub is a name of the highest bravery, honor, and patriotism. I need to read more. Peter Glovczewski is not the only local Kashub of the West, redefining his own particular relationship to his ancestral heritage and culture. Shirley Mass Conley has also been writing about all things Kashubian, rediscovering the true story of those Kashubs from northwest Poland who were hard-pressed to get out from under the yoke of their Prussian rulers. In one of her best books, Shirley discovered not only how those Kashubs finally left 19th-century Prussia, but how they ended up along the western frontier of Renfrew County. Here is Shirley Mass Conley reading from her excellent book, Kashubia to Canada, Crossing on the Agda. In the summer of 1872, after an exhausting 72-day voyage crossing the Atlantic Ocean, a group of 200 eager Kashubs, who had come all the way from West Prussia, today's Poland, in Northern Europe, sailing from the port of Bremen, finally laid eyes on North America as they sailed towards Newfoundland in their sailing vessel, a three-masted bark named the Agda. Shortly afterwards, their ship entered the mouth of the St. Lawrence River and moved westward, not stopping until it dropped anchor off a small island below Quebec City. Eventually, a government doctor was ferried across the open water and climbed aboard the Agda, hoping to quickly inspect all of its passengers, who likewise were all hoping to just as quickly get certified as medically fit so they could get on with their travels and enter Canada as newly minted immigrants. While patiently waiting for the doctor to inspect them all, 
Some of those Kashubs may have taken a passing glance at what lay ashore on Grosseil, located some 48 kilometers downstream from Quebec City. As Canada's premier 19th century immigrant quarantine station, since 1832, it had been used as this country's first point of contact for passenger ships that hailed from across the Atlantic and that hoped to disembark passengers or crew in Upper or Lower Canada. Its real purpose was to deal with any suspected wave of deadly communicable disease, cholera, smallpox, or even the measles that might arrive on those ships. And if not quickly quarantined, rage even more quickly through the St. Lawrence River Valley with fatal effect. Gross Eagle's great advantage was its relative isolation. It had proved as much during the 1840s typhus epidemic that had been largely stopped at Grosseal, as boatloads of sick and starving Irish immigrants sought refuge in Canada. In 1847 alone, the worst year of the Irish famine, records show about 8,000 Irish immigrants were buried at sea en route to Canada, while more than 5,000, some say as many as 6,000, Irish immigrants were buried in unmarked graves on Grosseal. It's not likely that the Agdas Kashubs knew of Grosseal's typhus history when they first arrived. Indeed, it was more than a decade after that horrific year of the Irish coffin ships of 1847, when the very first Kashub immigrant ship, named the Enrique, arrived at Grosseal in 1858. Still, 29 burials were registered on Grosseal that year, but luckily none of their surnames match any of the Kashubian families who settled in Redford County. It is believed that those first 76 Kashubs who made it past Grosseal in 1858 and who settled in Renfrew County were soon followed by many others who survived their first contact with Canada's premier quarantine station. But some did not. For instance, looking at the Grosseal burial records for the year 1868, 24-year-old Martin Blank was buried there on July the 18th. Martin came from the parish of Lipush, West Prussia, and arrived with his family aboard the ship, the Franz de Paul Armisen. After leaving Grosseal, the rest of the Blank family eventually settled near Wilno in Renfrew County. When Agda first dropped anchor off Grosseal in 1872, only four years after Martin Blank's death, the quarantine station seemed relatively quiet. Only 22 people would be officially buried in the island cemeteries that year. Whether any from the Agda were included in that number is somewhat unclear, however. Few 1872 records exist for Grosseal but several with local family names or similar to local family names have been found. One belongs to Anna Kulash, possibly a misspelling of the Kuyak family name. The John Kuyak family sailed on the Agda that year and included a son, Jacob, eight years old at the time. Yet he appears in no other Canadian record, although he does show up on the Agda's passenger manifest. Interestingly, his stepmother's name was Anna, 
Perhaps he was buried on Gros Seal, and the records mixed up, given that few, if any, of the Kashubs spoke French or English. Two other children from the Agda, John Kashubak and Joseph Letursky, they might also be buried on Gros Seal. John Kashubak was only one year old at the time, and while his name appears on the ship's passenger list, it does not appear in any other Canadian record. For instance, he's not listed with the rest of his family on the 1881 census for Renfrew County. The possibility that John Kashubak might have died on Gros Isle is strongly supported by the fact that the records show that his family had been detained there in quarantine, as had Joseph Letursky's family. 12-year-old Joseph Letursky arrived with his parents, John and Juliana Letursky, and four siblings, Mariana, John, Catherine, and Juliana, all on board the Agda. By December of 1872, the Letursky family were in Renfrew, where they baptized a new baby on December the 26th. It is not known if Joseph ever left Grosil with the rest of his family. But no record has ever been found to confirm his presence in Renfrew or anywhere else for that matter. Of course, there is always the possibility Joseph Letursky made past Grosil, and that as he grew older, he left for parts unknown prior to 1881. There was also a 23-year-old tailor named Anthony Letursky listed on board the Agda on that same voyage. But what became of him also remains unknown. Perhaps they went off somewhere together. And although only two Kashub families were officially recorded as detained at the Grosil quarantine station in 1872, apparently there were others. For instance, the Palbetsky family, who were also recorded on the ship's manifest, claimed that they too were quarantined. Their oral history describes the Palbetskys decided to come to Canada with their two children, Martha and Philip. Philip was only two weeks old when they boarded the Brennan, but tragedy struck while making the 16-week voyage across the Atlantic. Martha became very seasick, eventually died, and was buried at sea. Upon landing in New York, the Palbetskys, along with a few other families, were kept under medical observation for four weeks until officials were assured that they were not infected with any kind of communicable disease. Once released, they headed for Renfrew, where Mrs. Palbetsky's parents were settled. Although this oral history has some curious anomalies, a second oral history of the Palbetsky experience describes the same voyage, but with a few different details. John and Martina boarded a ship called the Brennan around May 26, 1871, and came to America through the port of New York. During the 16-week voyage, their daughter, Martha, died and was buried at sea. Upon their arrival approximately on September the 15th, the Palbetskys and several other immigrant families on the Brennan were isolated on an island in New York, where they were observed for four weeks. Here they underwent physical health examinations. From there, they set out to join Martina's parents and her Sobalski relatives in Renfrew, Ontario. Well, it is quite possible that the Palbetsky family were detained, but of course, not in New York, but on Grosil. Though, to be clear, no Palbetsky family member was officially recorded as having been detained in quarantine. As well, as the Palbetsky's emigration story was told over the years within the family, 
It may have been assumed that they were quarantined in the more famous Ellis Island in New York instead of Gros Seal in Quebec. Few 20th century Canadians really had ever heard of Gros Seal before its general rediscovery and rehabilitation late in the 20th century. Yet, all Kashubs who sailed up the St. Lawrence River past Quebec City during the 19th century had to have cleared medical inspection at Gros Seal. In fact, in 1872 alone, at least 133 Prussians and Prussian Poles were admitted to the quarantine hospitals on Grosseal. Thus, it is likely that there are more Kashubs buried on that island alongside Martin Blank. Indeed, there may have been as many as five Kashub children who had arrived on the ship the Agda who died that summer on Grosseal. In 1872, no other ship arriving at Grosseal had anywhere near as many deaths to report during its Atlantic crossing as the Agda. Many of its passengers had been sick on the voyage, and some were still sick when the ship dropped anchor off Grosseal on July 24th. Before the ship was allowed to proceed to Point Levy across the river from Quebec City, the ship had been boarded for a thorough medical inspection. The chief medical attendant, identified as Dr. Frederick Montsambert, and his assistants would have checked the passengers very carefully, especially when they heard that over a dozen deaths had occurred during the voyage. Those passengers who showed any indication of illness would have been detained until such time as the medical staff felt that they were no longer contagious. A government report from that summer showed three vessels were inspected between July the 22nd and July the 28th, but only one ship was quarantined, the Agda. Dr. Monsambert's report goes on to indicate that of the 334 steerage passengers and a ship's crew of 16, there had been three live births and 15 deaths during the voyage and 10 passengers who remained sick upon arrival. The reason for the Agnes quarantine was recorded as being an outbreak of measles. That at the time could be as deadly as typhoid or smallpox. And nine people with measles from the Agda were detained in hospital that last week of July, 1872. Of those nine passengers, eight were shown as discharged that very same week. And so five days after arriving at Grosseal on July the 29th, the Agda pulled up anchor and left the island. But we have no certain way of knowing if any passenger or passengers had died in the hospital or were left behind or were detained beyond that initial five-day quarantine period. In Dr. Monsambert's annual report for 1872, he states that he treated 45 cases of measles that year and that five people died of measles or its effects. Those five deaths from measles were described as coming from the 133 Prussian Poles admitted to the hospital. It is possible that those five deaths were five children from the ACTA although it's unclear why these deaths were not included in the hospital's weekly reports. Perhaps, given the Paul Betsky oral histories, we should consider a hospitalization due to quarantine that could last, if, if not four weeks, certainly longer than four or five days.
If the aunt was allowed to leave after less than a week of quarantine, there may be no telling what happened to four or five passengers if they were left behind in a quarantine hospital bed for another week or two. We do know that when the sickly and their immediate families were removed from Agda late that July of 1872, they were taken by another boat to Grosseal a small island with 20 separate hospitals of varied roles and sizes. Two wharfs, two chapels, one Catholic, one Protestant, two presbyteries, one guardhouse, two stores, the old Duplain farmhouse, and nearly two dozen family dwellings for the hospital and government employees on the island. Infected passengers were immediately sent to one of the hospitals. The remaining family members were then landed on the healthy side of the island, which was separated by more than a mile of vacant woods from the hospital side. There, washing and disinfecting of their clothes began immediately, as well as an examination of personal effects. Each Agda passenger would have been carefully inspected while still on board the ship, then again upon arrival on the island, and once again re-inspected twice daily if they were suspected of still carrying any disease. The relatives of the sick detainees were assigned an accommodation in the healthy camp located on the eastern end of the island, while the sickly were housed on the western side. On July the 29th, the active passengers cleared for immigration made their way to Point Levy. Although Quebec City was the official port of entry during the 1870s and onwards, transatlantic ships and steamers docked across the river from the city at Point Levy. This provided passengers easy access to the Grand Trunk Railway Line, which took them upriver to Montreal. The Agda disembarked its passengers at Point Levy on July the 30th where a government agent then sent a telegram to Ottawa to the Department of Agriculture, which at the time had jurisdiction over immigration. The agent needed permission to send the Agda passengers onward to Ottawa by train at government expense, as most immigrants at the time were often too poor to pay for further passage. Permission thus granted, the Kashub soon boarded a train and headed to Montreal and onwards to Ottawa, where they were met by another government agent. From Ottawa, that agent had them take a stagecoach, a little more than a rough wooden wagon, to Elmer, Quebec, on the north side of the Ottawa River. A contemporary travel guide gives a description of the remaining part of the journey. Omnibuses leave Ottawa City hotels at 7 a.m. every morning during the week for Elmer, a distance of eight miles over a splendid macadamized road to meet a steamer, leaving Elmer daily at 8.30 a.m. Immediately after leaving Elmer, breakfast is served aboard the steamer. The principal points touched at on the river are March, Kelly's Landing, Badham's, Onslow, Fitzroy, Pontiac, Union Village, Arnprior, Sandpoint, Bristol, Bonsher Point, Farrell's Landing, etc. It was at Farrell's Landing on the southern shore of the Ottawa River one warm and hectic August day in 1872 that our group of Kashubs disembarked. Exhausted, yet encouraged, energized, excited by their new surroundings in Renfrew County. Imagine, if you will, the party group, 
all climbing aboard dozens of crude wooden wagons pulled by teams of snorting horses driven by local farmers who looked much like themselves and who then all made their way to the village of Renfrew, a mile or two inland. And so began the Canadian lives we have come to know and cherish through our very own unique Kashub heritage and remarkable Renfrew County culture. Interesting, but why the western frontier of Renfrew County? What was it about this remote and rugged hill country that brought them here in the latter half of the 19th century to what we now know as the Madawaska Highlands on the very doorstep of Algonquin Park? Surely not the farmland, for even those hard-scrabble farmers from Kashubia would, could, and should have figured out on first arriving in the western frontier of Renfrew County that those infernal rock gardens along the Opiongo line were not agricultural gold. Or, as they still like to say around these parts, the Opiongo is a mighty tough road to hoe. To answer that and another burning question, let's turn now to Angela Lorbetsky, another one of our local historians, and, prior to her retirement, the long-serving head librarian at the Madawaska Valley Public Library in Barry's Bay. There are two questions that people most often ask about the Polish Kashub immigrants who settled here in Renfrew County in 1858 and 1872. Why did they leave that beautiful Kashub area of Poland to come here? And why did so many choose to settle around Wilno, Barry's Bay, Round Lake and surrounding areas? Isn't it the most remote part of Renfrew County? To answer those two excellent questions, we begin with some well-respected local historians, particularly Reverend Aloysius Rakowski, Shirley Mass Conley, Teresa Prince, Peter Klofczewski, and Joshua Blank. Or one might just easily watch a local documentary by Henrik Bartol entitled Canadian Kashubi, Canada's First Polish Settlers. Basically, they all offer up intriguing elements that address these two questions. For many centuries, Poland played a prominent role in Europe, but towards the end of the 18th century, Poland was swallowed up through the expansionist policies of its neighbors, Russia, Prussia and Austria. In a phrase, Poland lost its independence. By 1796, all Polish territories had been annexed by these three powers. But in northwest Poland, in what was called Pomorze, or Pomerania, there lived a unique group of people, Polish Kashubs. In his 1938 classic history of these Polish Kashubs, Joseph Kishilevsky wrote in The Land Gathers Dust that the word Kashub probably referred to the custom of 13th century Polish folk who wore long fur robes called Shubi or Shubes. Speaking a distinctive language of their own, Kashubian, these people were deeply Roman Catholic as much as they were strong Polish nationalists. Now, it is widely believed that the reason Polish Kashubs emigrated to Canada centers on the Prussian government's Protestant campaign in the middle of the 19th century to Germanize its former Polish territories, if not specifically eradicate the Polish Kashub language, culture, and Catholic faith. For instance, Otto von Bismarck's first such campaign of 1871 was essentially to impose German culture on all of its subordinate peoples within Prussia. So, reasonably, the 1872 wave of Polish Kashub immigration makes perfect sense. But what about 1858? 
According to Father Rakowski's The Saga of the Cashew People in Poland, he says that the earlier 1858 immigration from Prussia was due specifically to Prussian propaganda. Essentially, the Prussian government wanted to rid itself of Polish cashews. It wanted them to emigrate rather than to have to deal with them. It is also argued by some historians that prior to 1871, those first Polish cashews who had emigrated in 1858 to Renfrew County may have enticed their relatives back in the old country to come out to Canada. By sending them money and prepaid tickets for a transatlantic passage, they may have been able to induce them to try their luck in Renfrew County. However, Father Rakowski says the main reason the Kashubs left the homeland long before 1871 had more to do with grinding poverty, or as the Kashubs say, Bieda. It was the economic result of increasing deforestation and large families trying to live on smaller and smaller farms due to the appropriation by the Prussian authorities. Dissatisfied with their extreme poverty and Prussian domination, the only hope the Polish Kashubs saw of ever improving their lot was to emigrate to Canada or the U.S. They had heard from both immigration agents and relatives that it was quite easy to acquire land in North America. To be a landowner was the dream of all Polish Kashubs, especially hardscrabble peasants. Father Rikowski argues as much and quotes the writer Karl Kotsky, who stated that the prospect of owning one's own farm, free of rent and military service, and of heavy taxes was too much to resist. Joshua Blank further adds in his book Creating Kashubia that drought may have played a significant part and that it impaired those already meager harvests on Kashubian farms in the years leading up to the first wave of migration in 1858. Prussian railway development also benefited the Polish Kashubs indirectly, as those railways gave them access for the first time to German ports. While all these reasons may convince you as to why Kashubs left their homeland, you may still wonder why so many chose Redfield County. Why not go to the U.S. or someplace else in Canada? The Polish Kashubs, who first migrated here to Renfrew County, came from a region of Kashubia, which mostly included the parishes of Lipush and Parchovo, and from the general vicinity of Koszczyzna and Bitov, and the other parts of Pomerania in particular, Yela and Lesno. According to Kashmir Kevich and Shirley Mass Connolly, most Polish Kashub immigrants from Pomerania began their ocean voyage from the German ports of Bremen and Hamburg. Shirley Mass Connolly noted in her book Kashubia to Canada, Crossing on the Agda, that it was the custom for many such immigrants to take with them a handful of their native soil. They knew that they would likely never return to their native land and so wanted a handful of homeland to be cast upon their graves when they had to be buried in a foreign country. It is still a common practice for Polish Kashubs in Renfrew County, even today, when moving away from their homes and homesteads to take a shrub or a plant or even just a bit of soil to their new home. And so it was that those first Polish Kashub immigrants of Renfrew County boarded German ships in Bremen and Hamburg and headed for North America, some of them making a stop in Halifax, or a port in the United States, or sometimes sailing directly to Quebec. Once there, those Polish Kashub passengers could then reach Montreal and then Ottawa. To get further west, to Renfrew County, they could mostly pass by stagecoach through Aylmer and then by steamer to Farrell's Landing near the mouth of the Bonchere River. From there, it was inland for several miles to the then village of Renfrew. Once rested 
and armed with the necessities for frontier life, Polish Kashubs could then push on by foot, walking along the Apianga colonization road, where the Canadian government offered free 100-acre land grants all up that road for 200 kilometers until its end at Lake Apiango in present-day Algonquin Park. Immigrants of all kinds had been arriving in Renfrew County for years already when the first wave of Polish Kashubs finally arrived in 1858. Since the 1820s, Renfrew County had been the domain of timber barns and lumberjacks. Then, in the middle of the 19th century, free farmland began to open up the Ottawa Valley just west of Ottawa to settlers, especially around the towns of Empire and Renfrew, and as far west as Pembroke, and along the banks of the Ottawa River on both the Ontario and the Quebec sides. However, as everywhere, the best farmland had already been settled by the earlier immigrants to Ontario, which included the British, especially the United Empire Loyalists, who had fled the American Revolution, and also the French and the Scots. And of course, there were the Irish as well, who had left their homeland due to potato crop failures, and also for many of the same reasons as the Polish Kashubs. In 1851, three colonization roads had been opened in eastern Ontario, all offering free 100-acre lots to any immigrant who would clear enough of their lot to have their family live on it for four years and approve it during that time and at the end of which they would receive their titled land deed. In 1855, Thomas P. French, a flamboyant Irishman, became the Crown Land Agent for the Apiango Colonization Road, which began in the village of Renfrew and passed out through the western frontier of Renfrew County. Within two years, Mr. French had settled 132 families on those free 100-acre lots along the Apiango Road. They were occupied by English, Scottish, American, French and Irish settlers, all trying to last their four-year terms. When that initial wave of new settlers began to peter out, the colonial British government in Canada began to recruit new settlers from Prussian and Scandinavian countries. So, in 1857, T.P. French prepared a German-language pamphlet for prospective settlers and had it widely distributed in Prussia, which included parts of former Poland. And so, that is how, according to Father Rikuski, before 1858 had ended, the very first Polish Kashub settlers arrived in Renfrew County, although here, they were initially all labeled Prussians, since the Kashub part of Poland at that time was under Prussian rule. Joshua Blank, however, in his book, Creating Kashubia, states an interesting fact that he uncovered. At the same time the TP French was preparing his pamphlet, Wilhelm Sinn, a Canadian official dealing in immigration, had also written to many newspapers in Germany. And those letters from Sinn helped convince many in Prussia-occupied Poland to head out for the Ottawa Valley. In fact, Joshua Blank argues that TP French was late on the scene and not likely to have lured many Prussian immigrants to Renfrew County. To these new immigrants, the topography of the Wilno Hills may have been very reminiscent of their homeland, and it was also remote enough to satisfy another Polish Kashub preference, that is, to be left alone. They were known then, if not now, to take a dim view of government generally, but the real determinant may just have been that there wasn't much free fertile land left in the parts of Renfrew County, closer to the villages of Renfrew and Empire. In fact, the only free available land was at the end of the Apiongo Road along the western frontier, beyond even Brunel. 
Still, when those first Polish cashews finally got their free land deeds along the Apjonga Road, they probably felt it was a good bargain. The climate in Renfrew County, and consequently its vegetation, was quite similar to their native Poland. The lake-studded hills reminded them of their native land left behind. Most of the settlement lots in the western hinterland of Renfrew County came with a thick bush to harvest wood for building materials and winter heat. There was an overabundance of wild game, maple trees with sap for maple sugar, lakes and rivers full of fish, and meadows ripe with wild berries. They had freedom from both political oppression and forced military service, and an opportunity to preserve their unique language and cultural identity, as well as freedom to worship according to their faith. In fact, the crest of the Wilno Heritage Society says it all, Viara Ivonosh, faith and liberty. Those two ideals tell you all you need to know about what the Polish Kashubs of Renfrew County value most in life and what they found in Renfrew County in relative abundance. While the land itself between the village of Wilno and the hamlet of Hopeville on the Apjongo Road became the center of the original Polish Kashub settlement, the first Polish Kashub immigrants attended religious services back down that Apjongo Road in Brudnell. The first births Deaths and marriages of these settlers were recorded in the old parish registers of the Brunel Church. A visiting priest from Igenbo served its congregation until 1866, when that Brunel parish obtained its own pastor, Father James McCormick. That remarkable Irish Reverend Father heard confessions even from his non-English-speaking Polish Cashew parishioners. He did so through an interpreter, preserving each individual's confidentiality by holding the penitent's hand, while the interpreter asked questions from a standard examination of conscience in both Polish and English. The entire religious process was quick, simple, and ingenious. When the penitent wanted to confess a particular sin, he or she simply squeezed the priest's hand when the interpreter reached the relevant part of his spoken examination. Some of the outlying Polish Kashubian parishioners had to endure long distances to practice their faith, sometimes walking up to 15 kilometers in severe weather conditions to take part in a massive brunel. The parish priests also travel long distances, visiting the sick and sometimes saying mass in a settler's home, much of their time traveling on horseback or snowshoes. The Redford County Polish Kashub settlers also erected large wooden crosses at the intersections of many of their local roads. There, they would often gather on special feast days, particularly in May, a month devoted to the Blessed Virgin, for private worship or Sunday services, if bad weather made getting to the Brunel Church next to impossible. It was also customary for early Polish Kashub settlers to cross themselves on passing one of those crosses, and men were expected to doff their hats before each cross. Not all of those crosses have survived, but many have been restored and preserved in the Wilno Hills. In 1875, the first Polish Catholic parish in Canada was formed in Hagerty Township, near the village of Wilno, where a log chapel was completed in 1876. Father Francis Speck was its first Polish pastor. Several pastors succeeded him, including Father Ladislaus Dembski, who, in conjunction with Wilno postmaster Adam Prince, named the settlement Wilno after Father Dembski's birthplace. Father Dembski also began construction of a larger church, this one in honor of St. Stanislaus Kostka. It was finally completed in 1895 
under the pastorship of Father Branislaw Jankowski. Around that time, Father Jankowski also attempted to bring newer immigrants from Poland. Eventually, several families arrived from Galicia in southern Poland. They settled not only in Milno, but in Barry's Bay, throughout the townships of Sherwood, Jones, and Burns, and in the Round Lake region. Sadly, in 1936, St. Stanislaus Koska Church burned to the ground, but a new pastor, Father Edward Belowski, began building the well-known, magnificent St. Mary's Church, which still stands today at Wilno, atop Shrine Hill. By the end of the 19th century, more Polish Kashubs arrived in Renfrew County, including some who emigrated from Webster, Massachusetts, and who began settling mainly in two districts near Barry's Bay, known locally as Siberia and Pog Lake. As a result, in 1896, Father Jankowski, then the pastor of the Wilno Church, felt that a new mission church needed to be built for his parishioners in the Barry's Bay area. Soon, the Church of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary was built in Siberia, about two kilometers southwest of Barry's Bay. Still, by 1910, the number of Polish Kashubs attending the Church of the Assumption had already exceeded 125 families. It was easy for anyone to see that a larger church, more centrally located in Barry's Bay, was needed. Luckily for everyone concerned, there was general agreement who should lead that new building effort. That person was Father Peter Bernaski. In 1888, Peter Bernaski was born in Barry's Bay, and on December 21st, 1910, he was ordained a priest at Wilno, becoming the first Canadian-born Roman Catholic priest of Polish Kashub origin. A remarkable and award-winning scholar and a much-loved baseball player who led his Barry's Bay team to a notable championship in the Ottawa Valley the very same year he was ordained, Father Bernaski was given the task of building that new church in Barry's Bay. By May 1914, Hilaire Miranda, an architect from Pontagenet, along with eight carpenters and countless unpaid parishioners, began to work on its main edifice, built in the form of a cross and facing eastwards towards the rising sun on the edge of Barry's Bay overlooking Kamenisgate Lake. It was built during the Great War when money was scarce and building materials were even scarcer timbers having to be harvested and hewn by hand by parishioners. According to local historians, the land was first cleared overlooking the lake and the foundation dug using local teams of horses. Sister Bernice Mintha, in her St. Hedrick's Parish family's history, affirms that the beautiful pillars which support the church ceiling each contained three trees and were all harvested from the farm of John Mintha Sr., who also helped install them. On July 22, 1914, the church's cornerstone, foundation, and site of the altar were blessed by Bishop Patrick Thomas Ryan. And on Christmas Eve of that same year, Midnight Mass was celebrated in the new church. Constructed in Romanesque style, the building includes an array of stained glass windows, all larger-than-life images of various saints, all paid for through private parish donations. On June 2, 1915, the new church was completed, blessed, and consecrated by Bishop Ryan. It was also dedicated to St. Hedwig, a Polish saint, with Father Peter Bernaski named as its first pastor. About a month earlier, on May 3, 1915, Bishop Ryan had blessed and consecrated a large bell dedicated to and named Bronislaus Peter Stanislaus Hedwig. 
A smaller bell had been transferred from the old mission chapel along Siberia Road and dedicated to the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Also on that very same day, the Stations of the Cross were consecrated, as well as a large crucifix, which originally had hung in the old Mission Church of the Assumption and had been carried two miles in a stirring procession on the shoulders of parishioners to the newly constructed church. That same cross remains at St. Hedwig's today. To this day, St. Hedwig's, together with St. Mary's in Wilmo, remains a unique icon for Polish cashews from all around North America. It is a constant reminder to local residents of the contributions made by that church in particular and Renfrew County Polish Kashubs in general. Father Bernaski not only built the church, he revolutionized the area it lay in, which would later become incorporated in 1933 as the village of Barry's Bay. In his effort to pay down the building debt of St. Hedwig's, he started his famous summer picnics, an annual social event that became wildly successful as it knitted the local Polish Kashubs to the wider fabric of Renfrew County. Summer picnics, bazaars, and suppers were held at St. Hedwig's, and all would draw large crowds, many people coming by train from as far away as Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto. The first annual summer picnic took place on August 28, 1912, more than two years before construction of St. Hedwig's would be completed. Those picnics lasted until well in the 1960s, as they not only provided hearty homemade cooking and baking, but they also included extremely competitive ball games, with teams drawn from all across the Ottawa Valley. Notable orators and national political figures of their day would arrive, all vying to speak or shake hands with the overflowing crowds. Father Bernaski also introduced an annual May 3rd Polish concert that included theatrical plays, recitations, songs, and dances. He brought the first Hollywood movies to Barry's Bay, offering selected releases in his parish basement. Indeed, thanks to him, Barry's Bay saw its first silent film in 1920 and its first talking motion pictures in 1933. In 1928, Father Bernaski also built a convent for the Sisters of St. Joseph. And then in 1929, he built a large 10-room Catholic grade school right beside St. Hedwig's for the good sisters to teach local school-aged children. To quote the author Joshua Blank, in essence, Father Bernaski's actions render him an agent of modernization for this community. He gave Barry's Bay not only a sacred place in which to gather, but also a place for acceptable leisure and communality were exercised. During the summer of 2014, the Wilno Heritage Society at the Polish Kashub Heritage Museum sponsored an exhibit of photos and memorabilia kicked off by a formal exhibit opening on July 20th, commemorating and celebrating St. Hedwig's Church and the parish's 100th anniversary and its first pastor, Monsignor Peter Bernaski. At that time, St. Hedwig's published Stola, 100 Years of Faith at St. Hedwig's Parish, and Shirley Mass calmly published a booklet, A Giant Among Us, that acknowledged and honored the St. Hedwig's beloved first Canadian-born priest of Kashubian descent, our own Monsignor Peter Bernaski. Both are fascinating publications for anyone interested in delving further into Polish Kashub history and its people from this beautiful piece of what locals like to call God's country. Time now for a short break, but don't lollygag too long. 
We've got the second half of our show coming up shortly, and it's certainly got more than a few surprises. And we're not talking about squeezing somebody's hand to rat yourself out for stealing a chocolate bar. <laughs> 